everyone, and welcome to VLGA Connect and the weekly governance update, pre-Easter edition with Stephen Cooper, who I'm sure has brought Easter eggs and bunny ears with him. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Chris. Yes, um, over-chocolated already. Thanks for asking. I believe Zoom's got some new functions where you can add things like, I don't know, makeup and what have you. Can you do, you can do bunny ears though, can't you? We, we should have planned this better. I think Chris, but let's not. <laughs> uh, Any last nice. that, of credibility. Probably very wise. Um, for those who are listening on the podcast, um, it loses a bit in translation, I'm sure. But the, uh, the issues that we're going to talk about uh, certainly won't. There's quite a bit going on that we want to dissect on the governance update this week. And I know, I suspect, Stephen, that you've been glued to Operation Esperance, which renew, uh, resumed this week. I have had a passing interest, Chris. And um, uh, for those um, for whom Esperance might just be wondering what, what, what it is. That, of course, is the IBAC inquiry into the goings-on at V-Line and in particular at the moment in relation to transactions with a cleaning contractor. So what are the emerging themes and issues that you think could be of relevance to local government in particular, Stephen? I mean, I think with all of these things, Chris, there's the usual um, headline-grabbing highlight which carries its own risk. And, you know, there's been a... Um, a re-prosecution, if you like, or a, 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 a regurgitation of um, the fact of the allegation that um, the contractor or representatives of the contractor loaned um, an executive an amount of hundreds of thousands of dollars to assist with the purchase of a house. Um, it wouldn't be a great stretch to say that that might create a conflict of interest in terms of that executive um, with any decisions uh, relating to um, the contract. Um, and one of the risks for local government, of course, is that we would look at that and say, well, that's so extreme, it could never happen here. And of course, with all of these sort of ethical issues, a really important question is, what's the, what's the small stuff? What's the minor transaction that left unchecked might lead um, parties to uh, sort of um, grow the amounts that are involved, I suppose, Chris. So, Steve, this Operation Esperance started last year, as if I recall correctly. There were a few days of hearings and then it's adjourned to this year. Is that because they ran out of time in their schedule or have they taken the intervening time to dig further into issues that were raised at that time? Look, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, Chris, and I suspect there's a bit of both. Inevitably, uh, when the integrity agencies are running um, this sort of hearing, the fact that matters get an airing uh, means that people who might know something um, feel a little more compelled to make an approach. I'd be, without knowing for sure, I'd be very surprised if that hasn't happened in the intervening period to inform the line of questioning. Um, but also this week, there's been um, some new evidence led around um, some transactions with the subcontracting cleaning company, uh, sorry, with the contracted cleaning company that contrary to um, the contract where they weren't supposed to have subcontractors, um, there were subcontractors. And it would also appear that the subcontractors that um, were receiving money from the contracted service provider, uh, the suggestion is that they were very related parties uh, to the provider in terms of directors who weren't sufficiently removed, and indeed a suggestion that some of the subcontractors were individuals 
um, who basically wanted to be paid in that way because they didn't want to be on the uh, on the payroll system. So I can see that there's potentially some learnings coming out of this that should make its way or should make their way to the table of audit and risk committees at councils around the state. I think not only audit and risk committees, but I think councils generally, you know, one of the risks, you know, maybe Chris, particularly in a rate capping environment is to uh, under-resource contract management. And um, because... In fact, just because you outsource a service, it doesn't mean you've outsourced all the potential liability that goes with it. And uh, this is a sort of stark reminder, I suppose, Chris, that um, a level of oversight still required. Um, issues around, for example, um, even when tendering, doing due diligence around the ownership of companies. Um, in fact, is the company a standalone entity making inquiry about related entities and therefore ensuring that the financials that are being assessed are in fact valid because they're standalone and not propped up by sort of intercompany transfers um, is a really important first step. Um, Oak Health and Safety hasn't been mentioned um, mm -hmm. in Esperance, but I think, um, how would I describe it, Chris? Uh, bona fide, legitimate contractors who are doing the right thing, one of their business risks is being undercut by operators who uh, take shortcuts in relation to our health and safety. And I think it therefore behoves councils both uh, legally and ethically to make sure that there are appropriate our health and safety standards in place with contractors. Um, and I suppose the other part um, then is the ongoing due diligence that it doesn't stop once the contract's been awarded, that, um, you know, particularly sophisticated contracts will have requirements um, for the presentation of financial data, and that data really needs to be scrutinised um, pretty closely. All right, I suspect this won't be the last time we talk about uh, what's coming out of Operation Esperance, and I, I know you're keen to probably get back to the live stream. Uh, I can't wait, Chris. <laughs> so we should, we should move on to some other topics, but uh, we'll keep a watching brief on that one. I just wanted to briefly mention there's been a saga playing out in New South Wales involving Blue Mountains City Council for some years now. In fact, this sort of started in 20. 17 with some some public claims on radio i think mm. about uh asbestos management in that council which led to a public inquiry the former local government minister launched an inquiry it's taken some time to work its way through due to a range of things not uh, the least being covid19 but last week the final report into that inquiry was tabled by the new south wales government uh the council's been exonerated there's no cause for dismissal is one of the key findings. The asbestos management issues, such as they were, have all been remedied to the satisfaction of those who've taken a close look. And not only this, this is the bit I really like, Steve, that council has produced a toolkit for managing asbestos that the government is now saying every council should have uh, because it's an exemplar and uh, it will help them in uh, managing their own. Um, that, that's pretty good outcome really for something that looks so serious at the outset. It's a great story and particularly Chris given that the initial um, incidents that uh, were given an airing on the radio related to um, alleged um, misuse or poor process um, at preschools which is yeah. really guaranteed to get the attention of the media and the community um, and it also probably points to the fact that um, where that sort of disinfectant of sunlight is shone, um, 
you often result with, you know, good process, good policies. Yes, and you can understand there was obviously a lot of emotion around that, uh, mm. those claims, particularly with preschools involved. The other little bit of sunshine uh, for that council just in the last week, uh, Steve, that uh, Bea's mentioning is uh, that council's just been named Australia's most animal-friendly by the Animal Justice Party for a whole range of things they do uh, in terms of protecting our, um, our, our four-legged and furry and feathered uh, friends so double good news for blue mountains this yeah week. well done blue mountains and presumably a community in in blue mountains who really support the initiatives of the council um in that regard and um and probably lots to benchmark against for other councils now the reason i wanted to mention the animal friendly thing is it links into our next story briefly which has been playing out in the cbd of melbourne in the last couple of days i know you've taken a keen eye on this uh, carriage horse issue that is uh, causing concern to some. And interesting, you know, not that Melbourne's the only city in the world with uh, with carriage horses as part of the CBD landscape. But yes, Chris, there was a demonstration this week at the council meeting at the Melbourne uh, City Council following the tragic death of a carriage horse while on, on active duty um, uh, in the previous week. So, uh, that was very sad. Um, the matter wasn't on the agenda of the council, but um, obviously it's an issue that raises uh, raises great passion and it's, I certainly wasn't intending to take any sides. But I did think it was rather interesting in the sense, in the governance sense, in terms of um, the impact of the local laws of the council and what you know you might think about or one might think about if one was contemplating a change to those local laws, Chris. What is the power of the council to act in relation to this, Steve, as you understand it? Let's start by looking outside, Chris, and, and we'll do our usual sort of disclaimer, of course. We're not lawyers. Don't take legal advice from us. Um, being mindful that, uh, according to Vic Rhodes, that carriage horses are a vehicle. Um, being mindful, of course, that in terms of the cruelty to animals regime that the RSPCA has a lead role... And that for me sort of points to the fact that uh, in terms of seeking legal advice, if I was a governance um, manager or coordinator being asked to review um, a relevant local law, that sort of first question about the power to act um, becomes really important in terms of the local law not overreaching. Interesting, Chris, already that the City of Melbourne had had concerns regarding the operation of carriage horses and had um, using its local laws powers already stopped carriage horses from um, alighting and dismounting in Swanson Street, that uh, they were doing that in Alexandra Parade and other locations. So certainly the council has an element of control there by the issue of permits um, and had used that control in terms of a public safety sense. I think one of the other issues, Chris, of mm. course, is if the local law says... Um, that a permit is required, that also connotes that under certain conditions, a permit will be granted, that it's a bit difficult to then say, well, under the local law, you can get a permit, but we're not going to give you one. So um, if any action is to be taken um, in regard to that particular issue, I would have thought it's fairly likely um, it would require a review of the relevant provisions, you know, that sort of head of power provision under the local law. All right, watch this space to see if there's any appetite for exploring those options. A, a couple of quick notes before we wrap up. I know you were uh, interested to see the outcome of this New South Wales parliamentary inquiry into uh, funding that flowed to councils prior to the last election. Have I got that right? 
Yeah, that's true, Chris. Um, and look, let's let's put our cards on the table. The parliamentary inquiries can be quite partisan, and um, anything that comes out of a parliamentary inquiry needs to be read um, in that way. But a New South Wales parliamentary inquiry described $252 million um, funding stream as, quote, a brazen pork barrel scheme. Um, and I know other um, players in the local government sector have talked to the fact that um, one of the features of a lot of these grants has been that they've not been related, like, so grants to councils not being related to projects that are high priorities under council plans and other strategic documents. And it sort of begs for me a, a broader question about whether councils, given an offering of federal estate funding where there is still um, a local contribution required, at what point councils push back and say, no, thanks, it's not a strategic priority for us, we're not going to take the money? This is a vexed issue, Steve. I, I have to admit, I've, I've sat in this chair uh, with this sort of problem before, where you've got the uh, appetite of government to fund a particular project, but it might not be at the top of the list of the mm. council's priorities. That priority list has been developed in all good faith in consultation with the community, through a council planning a budget a capital works program process. So it is a difficult spot because the, the government funding, there's never enough of it. No. So does the council take the money and, and get that project off the list or stand on principle? That's really what we're talking about. Yeah, and typically um, if a federal or state government's going to be funding a project, there is an element of popularity and support for that project. Yeah. Um, so that's... Yeah. Uh, as someone else would say, a courageous decision minister to not um, to not go down that path. But um, remembering that if a few hundred thousand dollars get moved away from the priority project uh, to that project, something else falls off the list. Correct. So because we're still dealing with scarce resources when all is said and done. So it is a wicked problem. I uh, don't know what the answer is, but I'm pleased you've highlighted that one. Steve, it's brought back some wonderful memories. Now, um, <laughs> perhaps the uh, perhaps the final thought for this week is a note of congratulations. You know, I, I don't know if you share my passion here. I love to keep an eye on what's happening in CEO land around Victoria. And we're very, very thrilled to see that Bernie O'Sullivan, currently a director at the City of Greater Bendigo, has been appointed as the CEO of Macedon Rangers Shire. Well, congratulations to Macedon and to Bernie, who's um, come down, yes, come down from Greater Bendigo. Indeed. So John Nevins has been acting there for a little while. He'll step away shortly and there will be an acting CEO in place until uh, Bernie takes up the role. Steve, I've done a list, a running tally of uh, councils with CEO positions uh, up for grabs or having been determined since the last election. It's on the Local Government News Roundup website. If anyone wants to keep an eye on that, there's, there's 14 or 15 on the list now. I commend that list to anyone who's interested, Chris. <laughs> I, can tell, I can tell you're fascinated. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> great, to, great to speak. Have a lovely Easter. And, and you too, Chris. May the Easter bunny bring lots of bounty to you and yours. Don't eat too many chocolate eggs. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you next week with more uh, sage and timely observations from the world of governance. Stephen Cooper with us as he is each week on the governance update from VLGA. Mm -hmm.